This is the FS Tech Podcast. Hello and welcome to the FS Tech Podcast. I'm Peter Walker, the editor of FS Tech. And as many of the world's companies are forced to embrace remote working, new challenges are being met in terms of building trust and developing partnerships virtually. When the task is implementing complex regulatory technology solutions, the problems of no face-to-face contact makes managing expectations and making decisions all the more difficult. But for many financial services firms, this is the reality. Digital transformation projects and automation of compliance processes can help cut costs and free up staff at a time when both things are crucial to continued competitiveness. So this podcast will discuss all all these issues and more with an expert in the area. Henry Bellani, Head of Delivery for Customer Success and Support at Know Your Customer RegTech Software Automation Specialist in Compass Corporation. So without further ado, I'm going to get straight into the questions I've got for Henry. Um, It appears that remote working could be here to stay for many. Uh, How does that affect the way third-party tech solutions are implemented within financial services then? Yeah, Peter. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. Definitely excited to be able to speak with you on this podcast and uh, appreciate the opportunity here. So yeah, and to talk through the question that you have, I mean, looking at remote working, absolutely, I think we all agree that remote working will be here for quite some time now. And I think the challenge is that for reg tech vendors like us, for example, who are actually looking implementing these types of uh, KYC onboarding solutions, it's key that we are working with our clients very closely to ensure that we are successful in terms of the outcomes because this is as a, from a regulatory perspective of course important that we do this uh, successfully and then what we've learned and what we understand is that when you look at these uh, 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 remote working policies we have to do a couple of things we have to first of all ensure that when we are working through the requirements working through the scope of the of the project itself we ensure that we have greater clarity around that. Now, not, that's not to say that you, you don't do that in a regular environment, in a regular face-to-face type environment, uh, when you have meeting, meetings and when you have groups huddled together to work through these, these issues. But I think what we are saying is that we need to be a little bit more deliberate about how we document and how, how we discuss and review these types of uh, decisions. Typically, when you look at remote working, when you look at virtual conferencing, for example, uh, you know, you have, you tend to have uh, less verbal cues. You know, we want to have cameras on. I mean, for at least uh, as a general policy internally, we ensure that any meeting we have in, uh, within our organization, cameras are all on. So we can actually see each other. So at least gives us a, uh, some level of verbal cue. But, you know, when you're working through a, a, a problem together with a, maybe a spreadsheet or a document that's up on screen, you can tend to lose that a little bit. But I think what needs to happen is that we need to be a little bit more deliberate about the discussions that we're having. We document that. I mean, ten, ten, what tends to happen sometimes is that you have people talking over each other and you lose some of that discussion, especially as it starts to get, you know, uh, really deep or passionate or detailed. And so the, the you tend to get that loss. So we need to make sure that we're able to, you know, to document that, which effectively means that projects tend to get a little bit more elongated in terms of the, the timing. 
I think the other part of it of, as well, obviously, is that we want to ensure that the, uh, the various items are, uh, are well understood. So when you look at principles of a good meeting, right, making sure the moment we have the right agenda in place, making sure the right detail, we capture the, we capture the outcome of the meeting. And then once the meeting's over, we send out the, the notes of the meeting and, and validate that it was captured correctly. All those principles are the same. That doesn't change. The only difference here is that we're a little bit more deliberate about our, our process. We allocate more time to that process to ensure that we are able to successfully uh, deliver to that particular project. So when you look at RegTech solutions specifically, for example, and you look at financial services, we look at, for example, documenting the process by which you may be looking at onboarding a new client, a new customer for them. And so banks, financial uh, institutions have those policies already in place. You know, sometimes they can share that, sometimes they cannot. But uh, irrespective of that, it needs to be a, a walkthrough of that on screen and validation of that. And then a written confirmation after the fact that we've agreed to whatever decisions that have been made. So I think that's going to be uh, the, the new norm. Again, it's in some ways an improvement of the existing processes, right? Because I think we, we have a lot more documentation now than we potentially would have before the before this uh, new world that we live in. Okay, and, and with that in mind then, do you have any advice on, on how best to manage relationships when implementing complex solutions and working through long projects uh, virtually? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Yeah, I think it is a great follow-up in terms of you know what what I just kind of described here. The it's we're still in early stages, so I think it's important to ensure that uh, you know we continue to learn lessons here in terms of uh, you know what what the impact can be long term. But for what we've seen so far, I think it's important to make sure that we write amount of time allocated for you know seemingly trivial things like water cooler chats. I mean, it's interesting. You have a knowledge accident. Typically, when you're around a, uh, you know, a coffee machine or around a water cooler, and so it's important to be able to continue to have these types of discussions, because lots of interesting information is shared between uh, between uh, both, you know, the, uh, you know, staff members and, and and clients around water coolers when we take breaks and so forth. So, you know, the the current environment makes it a little bit harder. Agreed, but I think we try to be explicit in terms of saying, look, we want to make sure. That we allocated enough time to have these types of general discussions, spend a little bit more time shooting the breeze, so to speak, right in the beginning of the call, and uh, you know, perhaps talking more more than just what's going on in terms of, of the current virus situation, lamenting a little bit about some of the personal challenges that that folks have. I think that's that's one one thing that we've seen that continues to help us build and uh, build that uh, trust in that relationship as we start to go through that. And I mentioned a little bit earlier, the idea of being able to document and verifying what was what was discussed during these calls. Because invariably, what happens in a virtual conference is that we tend to uh, talk over each other, which uh, because there's no real visual cues necessarily in terms of when one is finished versus another person starts. So we need to kind of build in that time. And sometimes what happens is that when you talk over each other, we miss certain important aspects of that conversation or decisions that have been uh, made. And so it's important to be able to document that. So our teams, for example, on the ground, ensure that after every conversation, every every significant meeting, there's going to be things like minutes of meeting or, or capturing of the requirements and so forth to ensure that we have validation in, in those areas. 
The other challenge is that you know, what you have is a an environment where typically decisions are being made, and these decisions are being made without uh, all the information at hand. Again, this is a common occurrence in any any kind of management discussion, where you have uh, incomplete information out there. So the the point being here that it tends to be a little bit exacerbated by the fact that you may not be able to reach for that information as quickly as you need, or that you may need to pull in somebody else in that conversation. Occasionally makes it uh, easier if you have instant message connectivity with uh, another member of your organization, so you can pull that information out uh, quicker, as opposed to actually physically walking over there. So there's pros and cons on both sides. But I think at the end of the day, uh, being able to continue to maintain that relationship over the long term, and being able to build that trust. So I, I have to emphasize that the challenge here is that it's a uh, it's, it's all about building that, that trust within the uh, within the within the groups themselves as they continue to work long term, and making sure we got at least some level of uh, relationships that are built over time. But there are peaks and valleys in, in any in any project, especially in a long term project, where there may be excitement initially uh, in terms of the project where we've got these uh, you know, anticipation of of the functionality is going to bring you know, a lot of benefit. You get through the drudgery of the project midstream, and then you find that there's certain things that uh, were not anticipated that we need to work through, uh, that we need to uh, understand and address. And then you get towards the end of the project, we start to then complete your uh, your testing. There's anticipation that we're going to be starting soon. Excitement builds up and so forth. So there's all these. It's not necessarily emotional roller coaster, but there is that ups and downs that. Uh, happen in a, in a in a long project and to be able to maintain and that that trust is important i think these are some mm. things that we need to be thinking about yeah yeah i mean and talk, talking about kind of ups and downs um can, can you talk me through some of the, the costs and benefits of automating processes like customer onboarding both kind of short and long term then yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's 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 interesting, right? So obviously, you know, when when you look at uh, let, let's let's look at the fact that we're automating processes, right? And the the idea of automating processes is to create efficiency. Uh, in terms of customer onboarding, what we're doing here is is also not only creating efficiency in the process, but we're also meeting some regulatory uh, requirements, especially in the financial services sector. All uh, all relevant regulated uh, uh, entities within the financial services sector. Are required to be able to ensure that they conduct the appropriate due diligence on their customers, uh, not only on the point of the onboarding process, but along the way in terms of the the life cycle of that particular customer. In other words, ongoing monitoring. And so, when you look at the costs and benefits associated, it really is a function of where they're coming from. We have clients that do all of these things manually, for example, right? And it's a, it's 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 also a question of the the size of the clients and their their risk profile that they have as an organization. So let's just start with a client, for example, that is a, a, a smaller client that typically does this onboarding relatively manually, and as they continue to grow their organization, it becomes a more significant event that automation provides benefits. Now, when you have uh, you know new regulatory mandates that come out, for example, in either in the US and UK, where we had uh, small business loans being processed through the banking uh, sector, there becomes a huge spike in in that demand, and the smaller banks, for example, may get caught off guard. And so, automating the processes makes the actual onboarding and due diligence a lot more efficient and a lot more reliable. 
in terms of the in terms of the process. So you can see that for from them for their perspective, they see a significant benefit to that process. For larger banks, for example, um, their, their their challenge is the ability to actually validate their their clients in terms of risk perspective. And so again, having these types of uh, systems be able to automate those processes also helps them ident identify the risk quicker. And so from that perspective, by identifying the risk earlier in the onboarding process, it makes it easier for them to make a decision as to whether they want to continue that, that onboarding process. Now, there's, depending on the, the industry, the, the cost of a, uh, onboarding a, a new, new customer or new partner can easily be a couple of percentage points based on the overall value of that relationship. And so it's important that they're able to make a decision as early as possible, as opposed to down, downstream where they realize, oops, maybe we haven't done enough due diligence. We haven't done enough research on that particular uh, partner. We, we didn't realize that that particular partner, for example, has a, a sanction against it or has uh, received a lot of negative news or that particular ultimate beneficial owner or the director or the shareholders of that corporation could be considered high risk individuals. It's important to be able to identify those earlier in the process, which saves them significant costs in terms of being able to uh, uh, complete that onboarding cycle. And so for, from a large company perspective, where risk is uh, you know, potentially higher, not to say that small companies are don't have high uh, managed risk effectively. The point is that for these types of companies where high risk uh, is, is a challenge or they're risk averse, having these types of uh, automated processes really helps them with the with with the uh, with managing the the cost themselves. So it's really both short and long term, I think, in, in the sense that once we've got these processes established, it becomes uh, per per cost basis, per client basis the long-term uh, costs really go down significantly. And that's some of the benefits that we're seeing out there. Okay, and you, you mentioned kind of regulatory expectations. How comfortable are regulators with such systems? Has there been any pushback around the kind of black box nature of AI solutions compared to people-based processes? Yeah, I, I think it's a depends. It depends type of answer here, right? Um, you know, I, I've I've had the benefit of working with regulators across the world, in, including the UK as well, and you know, it's really a, uh, a level of their comfort and their familiarity, as well as their kind of their charter in terms of uh, of their regulatory oversight of the of the various institutions. In terms of your specific question regarding the black box side itself, yeah, there is, uh, you know, there tends to be some pushback around that, only from the context of making sure that they understand what the output is. From a regulatory perspective, they are interested in the outcomes. They're interested in trying to understand, all right, if I put a certain name in, in, in on one side of the system, uh, will it do what it's supposed to do and provide the necessarily output on the other side of the system, on the other side of that black box? As long as that's a reliable, trusted process and that they can test it and that they understand uh, to a certain level how this is happening, I think they're fairly comfortable with it. So I'll give you an example, right? So the point being that when you look at a, uh, identifying ultimate beneficial owners, for example, or, or corporate uh, you know, uh, owners uh, based on the registry, if there is a syst systematic process of being able to, number one, identify the names, so for example, John Smith, all right, fairly common name out there. 
and if we are able to identify all the John Smiths that are relevant, and then on top of that, then we will narrow it down based on specific search criteria of that particular transaction. So maybe a John Smith is a part of is a, is part of a certain age range within a certain profile within a certain uh, uh, company within certain uh, shareholder uh, uh, percentage ownership. Then you have a algorithmic process and a systematic process to be able to identify those. And so I think walking the uh, regulator through such systems, helping them understand how these decisions are made, number one, and then going through specific examples. Because what regulators tend to do as well is they kind of test the system. And so for them to be able to take these uh, these various uh, examples and ensuring this, this predictable results coming out, then I think they feel fairly comfortable with that with that black box. The reality is that from a, uh, a vendor perspective, the black box is the IP, the intellectual property, as, in which they are able to, you know, leverage their their the, the the progress of their companies. So it's important that you know this up to a certain point, you are willing to share some of that intellectual property, some of those algorithms within that black box. But at the end of the day, I think from a regulator perspective. I mean, they ultimately, you know, are not as concerned about the types of systems that they're using, right? Automated, manual, or otherwise. What they are more concerned with is that have you got a reliable, systematic process that you can uh, re reference against and that's auditable? Those, I think, are some of the questions that the regulators are more concerned with. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that, Henry. Um, I, I we, we like to end on on a kind of future-facing question. So. What do you think um, the kind of post-COVID world is going to look like in terms of red tech and and ways of working? Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, you know it's 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 a great question, right? I think it's almost the million-pound question, sixty-four thousand-dollar question. What do you even call it in terms of trying to be able to answer that one? It's still early, I think. I mean, I said, we we're probably fourth month, uh, fifth month of the crisis right now, in terms of what uh, the new normal is supposed to look like. But I think a couple of things that we can we can draw out of this, right? I think the first point is that we now do recognize that uh, remote working is actually a viable option. As I mentioned earlier, uh, tech firms, uh, financial services firms, previously uh, post uh, pre-crisis had employees working from home, right? In fact, you have some of the large tech companies out there that have a work-at-home policy pro provide those options to their to their employees and uh, kind of work through through that. So, uh, but that was more more on a kind of limited basis. This crisis has forced us to expand that policy essentially, you know, across the entire organization. But what's interesting as well is that at least for these industries, the financial services, reg tech, fintech industries, we are seeing this work. Again, we've got the right technologies in place, so I think we are seeing this work. And so from that standpoint, I think that's going to, uh, in some ways, be the new normal. We will still, there's still going to be a need for, for human interaction, uh, you know, face to face interaction. You know, humans are social creatures. So at the end of the day, there needs to be some level of, of interaction here. And so I think the offices are going to change. Uh, I know the guidelines out there in terms of social distancing, in terms of making sure that we set up the office uh, appropriately and so forth, making sure the lifts are sanitized, only X number of people into the lift and so on. But I think the net result of all that is that we're actually going to schedule time to come back into the office as opposed to you know just showing up on a regular nine to five type basis. 
So I think that's going to change. I think the idea is that we're going to have a scheduling system. X number of employees will will go in there. Uh, we won't necessarily have face-to-face -face meetings either. I think that that's gone. Right. The the whole point of an office, in some ways, of having office meeting, uh, office uh, meeting rooms rather, in an office, is to be have that that interaction. We have to limit that. And I think the the idea of scheduling those types of uh, of uh, uh, meetings will change. Office layouts, as I mentioned, will change. The actual need to come into the office will uh, also uh, will, will be reduced quite significantly. I think the second part of it is the infrastructure, right? Making sure that we've got the right facilities, we've got the right infrastructure, we've got the right cameras, people know how to turn on the cameras, people know how to make sure that they mute appropriately and they don't take their, their, their laptops to the, uh, the toilets and uh, you know have any unfortunate incidents We'll learn all of that, right? I think uh, that's something that, that that will change. I think we'll understand how that works. Uh, people will understand how to work effectively in a virtual environment. The other part of it is business travel. I think, unfortunately, airlines have been really, really hard hit in terms of the the you know, the, the lack of uh, travel out there. I think what's interesting, again, this is early days, but I think you'll start to see, uh, you know, uh, holiday travel versus business travel actually take up more uh, first. Uh, from business travel perspective, I think you go only if you have to, and the you know obviously if you can find alternatives to these types of meetings, then you would. Versus, I think you have personal travel where you're actually going to holiday, and people want to go on holiday and want to have a different environment, so they'd be willing to take more of a risk in terms of a personal holiday type uh, arrangement. So I think personally, uh, again, my my humble opinion is that you're going to start to see more of this personal travel tick up first before you start to see business travel. The unfortunate side effect of all of this is that the cost of travel is going to go up. You know, you're going to have planes that have certain percentage limit of capacity. They're playing. They're in. They're airlines that are going to just block up middle seats and uh, maybe every other every other row. You're not going to have 100% uh, capacity of planes. I think that's gone. Uh, perhaps that's a benefit for uh, for for frequent travelers, but the reality is that 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 results in increased costs of travel. So you know, uh, uh, finance departments in large corporations are going to really revisit that and really trying to uh, assess what that means in terms of uh, the travel itself. Co going to conferences, going to expositions, I think that's definitely going to change. And so for us as a as a technology provider. You know, trying to find new opportunities for making sure that we, uh, our message is understood, and making sure that uh, we are able to at least uh, position our value to our new clients, to to the market effectively. I think is something that we need to continue to work on as well. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, we we have this uh, discussion about millennials, and it's interesting to note that the oldest millennial now is about 40 years old. Which means that they have quite a quite a large workforce that's starting to come into uh, into into employment. Now, uh, millennials typically are known as digital natives versus uh, myself, for example. I'm a I'm a digital uh, immig uh, uh, immigrant, uh, you know, having been born in days when there wasn't the internet or personal laptops and so forth. Versus millennials generally have been born into an age where they are used to these types of uh, solutions used to virtual conferencing, used to interacting with colleagues uh, virtually online and so forth. My son, for example, um, you know, he's, he's in university right now. 
he's very very used to you know playing his his, his online games with his friends you know for hours on end you know that's a personal pet peeve of mine but uh, for better or for worse you know they're comfortable being able to interact and being able to uh, uh, you know uh, establish relationships on screen that's going to carry over significantly into the work environment as millennials slowly start to take over the workforce uh, with the exit of the baby boomers. And so I think you're gonna see some of that happening and being more familiar. It's coupled with the improvement in technology, right? Wi-Fi is superb. You've got 5G now on, on you know, uh, handhelds. Uh, I think the, 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 up, the, the, the throughput of uh, Wi-Fi networks continues to improve. Uh, the types of technology, the types of virtual conferencing tools out there continues to improve. So I think it's gonna be the new normal from that sense that we are going to be looking at, at these ways of working. As the rec tech, I think we are looking at understanding, well, how do we, number one, ensure our employees are set up appropriately to be successful? Number two, ensuring that our customers are satisfied with the delivery aspects, the projects that we're working with. And number three, how, do, how does the market really understand uh, what the value that we bring to the table beyond these, you know, face-to-face uh, uh, -face conferences and so on. All the different tools are out there, social media, uh, you know, podcasts like these, uh, various other, uh, you know, um, uh, channels of communication, technology communications are being developed, continue to be developed. I think it's just a matter of time when you're going to have a hologram. Again, I'm, I'm putting my Star Trek hat on now, but I'm, I'm looking at uh, hopefully entering a holodeck one, one day and then interacting with my with my colleagues, with my customers, or you know, with with other uh, partners out there, to be able to ensure that we get these types of technologies implemented successfully. Excellent. You you've gone quite far in, into the new normal there. Um, that's uh, <laughs> lots lots of salient points though. And uh, yeah, you you got us up to speed with kind of regulatory automation and and the new ways of working so it just remains for me to thank you very much for for, for coming on and, and, and answering all my questions great peter no appreciate the opportunity definitely uh, peter and uh, absolutely you know to the audience stay safe i think you know, we all would definitely get through this and uh, you know i look forward to interacting with you again peter thank you very much Thank you for listening to the FS Tech Podcast.